Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 5. Lord willing, next week we will be wrapping up our study of faithful sojourners walking worthy in a wayward world. If you can believe it, we've spent 24 sermons in 1 Peter so far. Hopefully they have proven to be beneficial to you as we've examined God's word. We're actually going to start this morning by reading our passage. So I know you just sat, but if you would, please stand with us as we read together. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. This is the word of the living God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning desiring, Lord, to hear directly from you, through your word, not some audible voice from heaven, some ethereal experience, but the spirit applying your word to our hearts. Father, as I stand here, I am woefully incapable of getting this word to, to mean anything or make any difference in anyone's hearts. We need you. I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word that you would allow us all to see clearly what it is that you say to us in this text. Lord, we do have an enemy, and we know that he is dreadful. He is ferocious. But we know that as we just sang, that your strong arm has crushed his power. Help us to be reminded of that today, that we would leave both alert and understanding that you are, we are against a foe who has already been defeated. May Christ be glorified in our time together. In your holy name, amen. You can be seated. The last time we were in 1 Peter, we were dealing with the call to humility. Before that was the call to faithful shepherding, and today the title of our sermon is The Call to Vigilance. When we looked at humility last, we understood that humility is undoubtedly an essential Christian virtue. But the idea of humility can often be misunderstood as a call to passivity. That the Christian life is one of hanging the head down low, speaking quietly, and living a life of clocking in and clocking out of work until Jesus returns. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are called to action. We are called to lay down our lives and take up 
our cross. We are called to live peaceably with everyone insofar as much as it depends on you. And we are called to go into the world to make disciples by proclaiming a gospel that is deeply offensive to people in their sin. The Christian life is one of action as we are caught up in the middle of a spiritual war that is taking place even right now in the unseen realm. Paul writes of this spiritual war in his letter to the Ephesians. You know this text. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not people, but instead we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice that Paul did not say, we do not wrestle. Paul did not say, we do not war. Instead, what he was doing is properly identifying who the enemy is. He assumes that you understand we are at war, that this is not peacetime. However, our enemy is not made of flesh and blood. He is unseen. The enemy is spoken of as the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. He's called the prince of the power of the air. They are spiritual forces of evil. We love movies that depict epic battles, don't we? We love stories of valiant men of courage and conviction taking the enemy by storm. But how often do we stop to think and realize that we are in the midst of the most epic battle ever imagined? We're not simply living a quiet little life in West Texas or in a West Texas town where nothing exciting ever happens. We are in the throes of a spiritual battle between the powers of darkness and the power of light. So rest assured, the Christian life is anything but boring. When you are called into salvation, like it or not, you are called into the Lord's infantry, where you will serve as a soldier until you retire into glory. So it behooves us then as soldiers to learn what our weapons of warfare are and how to prepare ourselves to engage with the enemy. As we look at our passage this morning, we will see that Peter gives us four weapons to war with, with against the devil. First, we're going to consider vigilance. The weapon of vigilance, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This passage has three imperatives, three commands for us, and two of them are right here at the front of verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Sober-mindedness is a theme that we have already visited twice, if you remember, earlier in First Peter. It was in chapter 1, verse 13, and then in chapter 4, verse 7. And so in that, we've come to understand that sober-mindedness is referring to not being under the controlling influence of anything of this world, whether it be alcohol or drugs, or money, or anxiety, or fear, or riches. 
The things of this world must not have controlling influence over your mind, but instead you must take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. In chapter 113, he told us to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. And he was saying that in light of being aware of the return of Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, he told us to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And so, as we consider the second imperative, to be watchful, it's actually very similar in meaning and in useful in usage. To be watchful is meaning to be on high alert, to be aware, to be awake. Many times that we find this word in the New Testament, it's being used in two primary ways similar to sober-mindedness. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. Jesus tells his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 4 verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There is a spiritual alertness that we are to have in prayer. But it's also used in connection to the second coming. And when it's used that way, it is translated as alert. Matthew 24, therefore stay awake. I'm sorry, it's translated as awake. He says, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, are we to assume that Jesus is telling us to never go to sleep until he returns? Is that what he's saying? I know some of us might feel like it this morning. But that's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying to be alert, to not fall asleep at the wheel. There is an alertness that we ought to have as we live in, uh, uh, that we are supposed to live with, in which we are ever aware that the Lord can return at any moment. And we are ever watchful as we anticipate his return. So, the idea that Peter has in mind here in our text can be summed up in the one word, vigilance. Be vigilant in the battle for your mind as evidenced by sober-mindedness. Be vigilant in prayer and in waiting for the Lord's return. I made the comment a bit ago about not living a life of clocking in and clocking out of work until the Lord returns I wasn't saying that to discredit or diminish the value of work, of course not, but to mention one of the ways that we often fall asleep at the wheel in life. We can get so busy and tied up doing stuff that we are no longer vigilant. We aren't being sober-minded. We aren't being watchful. Instead, the cares of this world are taking us captive they are capturing our attention. Tell me if you've ever done this. You've ever been driving. You zoned out. And before you know it, you're actually further along than you thought you were. And you're like, what happened to the past five hours? Well, hopefully it's not that long. What happened to the past five minutes? A second ago, I left my home. Now I'm at the light. What happened in my brain? You were asleep at the wheel, mentally speaking. You were not being sober-minded in that moment, were you? You weren't being watchful in that moment, were you? And we do that in life, though all too 
often it's because we're just so busy. We get so busy working, taking care of things around the house, running errands, going on vacation, seeing friends. And before you know it, we didn't even realize it, we have shifted our spiritual life into autopilot. And at that moment, our adversary says, yes. As is most pertinent in our context here today, when you suffer, you also find yourself shifting into autopilot as you become so focused on the pain, on the misery, on the heartache or the difficulty that you're having. And before you know it, it's been a week or a month or perhaps even a year since you were taking the things of God seriously. What was happening? You were not being sober-minded. You were not being watchful. And in that moment, you are ripe for being devoured. Peter is calling you and all of us this morning to be just the opposite of that, to be sober-minded, to be alert and watchful, to be vigilant. But, but why? Because you have an enemy who is alive and active in the world today, even right now. Peter writes, your adversary, the devil. Peter makes this very personal. The devil is not just some ambiguous, ethereal force of evil. He is your personal adversary. He hates God. He hates the things of God. And he certainly hates God's people. Make no mistake, you have an enemy. In Peter calling him the adversary and the devil, he's using language that tells us how the devil is our enemy. See, we have this problem of either giving the devil too much credit for everything that goes wrong, as I've often joked in here before, of you spilled your coffee and you say, not today, devil. We give him too much credit for everything. Your, your flowers don't grow the way you want them to. Not today, devil. Your, your casserole doesn't turn out as you wished it would have. Not today, Satan. Or we give him not nearly enough credit and we completely forget that we have an adversary who is actually alive and active in the world today. When he calls him an adversary, this is a word that's referring to an accuser in litigation. It's courtroom language. In calling him the devil, he's using a word that means slanderer. In other words, one of the ways the devil operates is by slandering and accusing you falsely. It's no secret that many of the ways the early Christians suffered was by being falsely accused of crimes that they were not guilty of. And if they weren't tried in the criminal courts, they were tried in the court of public opinion. Early Christians were mislabeled as cannibals because they partook of the Lord's Supper where we eat the flesh and drink the blood. And this was taken literally by the culture. And so they were called cannibals. Some historians point out that Christians were tried as treasonous, as as rebels. Why? Because they said Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. But Jesus told us this would happen, didn't he? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Get this falsely on my account. 
that they are saying things that are not true. Now, is it any different today, though? Christians today are labeled as bigots, as intolerant, as hateful when they stand for and on the truths of Scripture. Rest assured, my friends, that this is the work of Satan himself. This is satanic influence because he is the father of lies and he is your adversary. So then, if you have an adversary, you must be vigilant. You must be alert. You must be on high alert because the devil prowls around. Notice the powerful metaphor Peter employs in explaining what your adversary is doing. He says that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This teaches us that the devil is not passive. He's not sitting on a throne in the underworld, holding a pitchfork in the hand, waiting for people to come down there so that he can torment them. The biblical understanding of Satan is that he is alive and active in the world today. And he is actively seeking out Christians that he can devour. Of course, this is what he's always done. Think back to Job. What was happening there? Chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Notice, first of all, there what is happening is that Satan is appearing before the Lord and he's having to give an account to God for what he has been doing. Even Satan is accountable to the Lord. What is the devil found doing? He's going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down upon it. Or as Peter says in our text, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. Our text tells us that Satan is prowling, looking for someone to devour. Well, what happens next in Job? The Lord said to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job. Did you catch that? The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. Satan is looking for someone to devour. And God suggests that he try Job. Can you imagine that? Is that completely contrary to the way that we think the way things work? Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed his work. You've blessed him tremendously. You've blessed his family. You've given him riches. And this is why he loves you, God. This is why he follows you, God. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Listen, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. All that happened in Job's life, all of the suffering, 
was brought on under the sovereign direction of God. And he used the devil to accomplish his own good purpose. Don't you see that in the text? The devil was roaming the earth. God brought up Job. The devil didn't. God did. The devil asked for permission to attack Job. God granted him the permission while drawing boundaries for how far Satan could go. Many have said in summarizing Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil. He is subservient to the Lord. What was the devil hoping to accomplish in the life of Job? Exactly what Job's wife told him, curse God and die. That's what he wanted him to do. Curse God and die. The devil thought that Job's faithfulness to God was only because he was blessed with great wealth, a beautiful family, and good health. So what did the devil do? He attacked those things thinking this is how he would devour Job. But what ended up happening, as always, is that God accomplished his purpose. Peter also had this firsthand experience in case you're tempted to think, well, that's Job, maybe that's poetic, that's the Old Testament, Luke chapter 22. This is Jesus to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What a remarkable statement. Imagine being Peter. Hey, Peter, Satan asked to have you to see if he could devour you. Well, thank you for the heads up, but you told him no, right? You said that I'm busy or something, right? You told him I'm an apostle, right? That I'm the leader of the apostles. You told him that, that he couldn't have me, right? No. But I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Just like in Job's situation, the devil is only operating within the confines the Lord allows him to operate within because God is using him to accomplish his own purposes. Thus, when we see a text like this that tells us our adversary is prowling around we know that he's only prowling around as far as the Lord allows him to, and he's only doing what the Lord is allowing him to do. In this case, in 1 Peter, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. Make no mistake, friends. Though the devil is only able to do what the sovereign Lord allows him to do, he is still a ferocious foe. Peter doesn't picture him as a wimpy enemy, does he? If your translation says that the devil prowls around like a kitty, then you probably need to go to our library and get the ESV. He's saying that he's a lion, a roaring lion. This is particularly meaningful to Peter and the people at this time because they would undoubtedly be aware of the Romans' practice of damnatio ad bestia, which means condemnation by beasts. The Romans would feed criminals to lions as capital punishment, often in front of a watching crowd for their entertainment. And Christians were sometimes persecuted in this manner as it was a way for the Romans to associate Christianity with the most 
heinous of crimes and making them die a criminal's death. But in this way, these early believers would suffer the way Christ did, weren't they? Because they were receiving capital punishment, dying as a criminal for crimes they did not commit. When the early believers were enduring various trials and facing persecution, they were hearing the, the lion's roar. You, when you're called names for being a Christian, when you're abandoned because you're a Christian, when you're criticized because of your faith, that is the roar of your adversary. As our brothers and sisters right now in Canada are facing persecution from their government, they too are hearing the roar of the lion as he is trying to intimidate them. Think about a lion. It's exactly what they do. I was reading an article from the Cleveland Zoological Society about lions, and it said that the roar of a lion can be heard up to five miles away. Some wives are thinking, my husband can't even hear me from the kitchen. But you can hear the roar of a lion five miles away. And they roar to show off their power and scare intruders. One of the keepers of the lions was quoted as saying, quote, when Doc roars, he's calling out to everyone that this is his territory. And this is his pride. It literally shakes your chest. It's so loud, end quote. It's a tactic of intimidation. And as you watch the lion roar, it's something to behold, isn't it? As the lion throws his head back and you can see his giant teeth. This is what your adversary is doing when he uses the weapons of persecution. He wants to scare you away. He wants to intimidate you into being silent. He wants to put more fear in your heart of the persecution than you have fear of God. He wants to scare you so bad that you'll run far from the Lord. Now, you wouldn't dare think of, think of taking a nap around a loose lion, would you? So then we should not doze off spiritually and mentally when the adversary is prowling the earth because he's seeking someone to devour. And he devours you by getting you to turn your back on the faith. Understand, Satan is not just wanting you to get a little irritated on your way to work. He's not just wanting you to have an argument with your spouse or to say some things that you shouldn't say. His battle plan is much more sinister than that. He wants to destroy your soul. Even just a physical death is not enough. He wants you to spend an eternity suffering the wrath of God. So even when you sin as a Christian and you hear the voice of condemnation telling you to run far from God. Surely he doesn't love you anymore. Surely the blood of Christ is no longer efficacious for you. Rest assured, that is the roar of the lion, and he means to intimidate you. We must be vigilant and on the alert, as we know that he never sleeps. He never rests. Satan devotes 24 hours a day and seven days a week to intimidating you, to deceiving you, to tempting you. So then, what must we do when we hear the lion's roar? Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. That's number two, the second weapon of war, resistance. 
I want you to notice that as Peter speaks of our direct engagement with the adversary, notice what word he does not use, rebuke. He does not say, rebuke Satan. We often hear many people attempting to rebuke Satan, whether it's in their advice to you or as they pray, they try to rebuke him or in some way they want to wrap spiritual chains around him in prayer. But you don't find this in the text, do you? We're not directed to do this. We're directed to resist him. In fact, as we understand that Satan only does what God has allowed him to do, we could actually find ourselves rebuking what God has ordained. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians when he spoke of the messenger of Satan that was sent to him to torment him. This messenger was sent to him. Paul didn't rebuke him, did he? Instead, what did he do? He pled with the Lord to remove the thorn. Contrary to the teaching of many charismatic preachers today, we are not given the authority or the direction to rebuke Satan. We are simply called to resist him. James says the same thing in verse chapter 4, verse 7 in his letter. He says, resist the devil. And get this, and he will flee from you. We cannot rebuke Satan, but we must re resist him. Moreover, we can resist the devil because we know that he is on a leash. We know that he only operates within the confines of our sovereign Lord's dictates. And no harm can befall us that isn't according to God's will. Thus, Peter tells us the how of resistance. Resist him firm in your faith. Firm in the original is a word that is indicating determination. That you are resolved and committed and dedicated and devoted to the Lord in faith. That the devil's roar might be loud and it might be intimidating. But you know that the Lord has already defeated this foe. So for the believer, the lion might roar, but he is a toothless lion. You know that Satan is so frantic doing all that he can because he knows that his time is short. The day quickly approaches when he will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. And until then, you and I need only concern ourselves with resisting him by standing with a flat-footed faith in God. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know what Jesus did not say? The devil is about to do this, but if you pray hard enough to rebuke him, he'll stop it. He didn't say that, did he? What did he say? Be faithful until death. Be faithful unto death. Dr. Strand said at the conference this past week, faithfulness is conquering. Imagine that. Imagine reading this later letter where Christ is telling this church directly that Satan himself is about to throw some of us into prison to be tested. What would you be thinking? Well, can't you stop him? 
if you know this is going to happen, why don't you just stop it from happening? Or perhaps you would turn to rebuke Satan. Let's all pray to rebuke him. But Jesus' directions to the church are to not be afraid. Don't be fearful. Be faithful. That's the same call to us today. He said, when you are thrown into prison, Smyrna, know that this is the roar of the lion. Do not be fearful of this. Just be faithful. And that's exactly what Peter is writing to the elect exiles in the dispersion. And by extension to all of us, when you experience the lion's roar of persecution, don't run away. Stand your ground in faith. Where did Peter get this idea from? Surely he got it from our Lord, as seen in the passage in Luke 22 that I read from a bit ago, where he said that Satan demanded to have you, to sift you, but I have prayed for your faith that it may not fail. We are so concerned with never feeling any tension, never experiencing any difficulty, never losing any relationships, Never ever having to be fired from a job, never having to be tested, never having to fall sick, never being tried, never experiencing any sort of inconvenience in our life that we miss the entire point of what God is doing in us. Jesus tells Simon essentially, look, Satan's coming for you, but I prayed for something much more important than him leaving you alone. I prayed that your faith won't fail. That's been Peter's message in this letter all along, hasn't it? Chapter 1, verse 7. Turn there. Chapter 1, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is more important is not making it into the locker room after the game without any blood on your jersey. What's most important is walking back with the trophy. But notice, even in the opening of this letter, Peter was showing us that our faith is being tested. It is. I mean, this is verse 7. He just started this letter. Hey, guys, how's it going? You're being tested right now. That's how prevalent this was in the early church and that's how immediate it is for you and I isn't it our faith is being tested but verse 5 in chapter 1 tells us we're also being guarded by faith we're being guarded by God's power through faith we are saved by faith in Christ Jesus in this lifetime and we will receive the fullness of this salvation at the end of our lives. Guess what? By faith in Christ. Not by just working your hardest, not by trying your hardest, not by trying to earn it, but by faith in Christ. Thus, we resist the devil by faith in the word of God. We lay hold of the promises found in Scripture that are ours in Christ Jesus. And we preach them to our hearts until this sound drowns out the lion's roar and the fear is driven away. Think of Jesus in the wilderness as he was tempted by the devil. 
Every time the devil tempted him, our Lord turned to the word. It is as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that I quoted from earlier, that we are to put on the full armor of God, wearing the shield of what? Faith. The shield of faith and the sword of what? Which is the word of God. These weapons are in our hands, ready to be used at a moment's notice. They are in our hands to be used. These weapons will drive away the fiery darts of the devil. We raise the shield of faith in defense against them. And when he accuses us with lies and slander, we thrust his lies through with the sword of the truth. And this is what resistance to the enemy looks like. Look at verse 10, I mean, verse 9, the second half. Remembrance. The third weapon is remembrance. He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the lies the slanderer whispers into our ear in the midst of suffering is that you're alone. That nobody else is going through what you're going through. God must be angry with you. What have you done? You must have done something wrong to deserve this. Clearly, God is done with you because he's not paying any attention to you. He's not protecting you. So why don't you just be done with him? This is the roar of the lion. What a mighty weapon remembrance is in that hour. Call to mind that what you are enduring, the sufferings of, for Christ, they are the normal, the normal, expected experience of anyone who bears the name of Christ Jesus. If people hate you because of Christ, you're not alone. You're not being singled out the way that you think you are because your brotherhood around the world is experiencing the same thing. It's important to note here that Peter isn't just speaking of the general type of suffering that you and, and, and I endure as being a part, uh, living in a fallen world. When he mentions your brotherhood, he's talking about other believers. So that Peter is referring to the unique kind of suffering that only believers endure as they suffer for the name of Christ. Now listen, this kind of suffering is manifested in many ways. In being imprisoned, in being martyred, in being criticized, in being ostracized, in being cut out of people's lives, in losing your job because of your faith. All of these things are the kinds of things that believers suffer insofar as much as they are happening to you because of your testimony for Christ. When people see you living for the Lord and they hate you for it, they mock you for it, or they simply re refuse to believe that someone like you could actually change, my friend, don't be discouraged because these kinds of suffering are being endured by your brotherhood all over the world. And Jesus told us it would be so. Matthew 10, he said it. He said that no student is better than his master. If they persecuted Jesus... How much more will they persecute us? 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. Perhaps you're thinking, I don't ever face any persecution. And you should ask yourself, am I living a godly life? Perhaps they don't persecute you like Christ because they don't see Christ in you. Perhaps you're not desiring to live a godly life in this present age. You can either live a godly life or you can live a comfortable life, but you cannot have both. When you and I set our face like flint to live a godly life no matter the cost, we will incur cost. It will cost us something, and so it must, as it cost our Savior his life. Fourth and finally, assurance. The three weapons we've looked at so far have been vigilance, resistance, remembrance, and now assurance. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This text is absolutely beautiful and tremendously comforting if we have eyes to see. We learn that, yes, the devil is our adversary, and he is a threatening foe. We should take that threat seriously. But God has given us the weapons of warfare with which to engage him. Ultimately, though, it will not be our usage of these weapons that causes us to endure. Our persevering will be because God is preserving us. Notice that Peter says, after you have suffered. What does that mean? That means that there is an after. There is an after of suffering. There is a certainty with which we can endure knowing that there is going to be an end date. There is something after the suffering. It will not last forever. It will not be per permanent in fact, as Peter says, it will only be for a little while. Now, does this mean that we should expect just a few days of suffering and then it ends? Or perhaps just a few weeks or, or at most maybe just six months of suffering? Well, let's see. Turn back to chapter 1. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for, there's that word phrase again, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, here it is, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That a little while might be a few days, it might be a few months, or it might be your whole entire life. You might be persecuted, indeed we ought to be persecuted until the day that we perish. But even still, in contrast to eternity, it will have only been a little while. Nobody will cross over into glory and behold the King of Kings in all of His beauty and resplendent glory and say it wasn't worth it. Nobody will look at Him and say, 
I endured way too much for this and this is all I got? Instead, all of us will look at him in glorified bodies and being freed from sin and we will say it was only a little while, wasn't it? It wasn't that big of a deal after all. The Bible, get this, turned out to be true. Suffering is guaranteed in this life and you can expect it until your mortal body goes to the grave. But you can also expect to be guarded by the power of God if you belong to him. Notice what Peter says of God. He calls him the God of all grace. I will resist the temptation to spend a while on that because next week we're going to go more in depth of what that is as we look at the grace of God in 1 Peter. Lord willing, we'll do that. But to suffice it to say here that our God is both the source and the giver of grace. Grace is only found in him and grace is only given by him. Peter reminds his audience of this grace as he said that this God of all grace is the one who called you into his eternal glory. Do you see that juxtaposition of a little while of suffering and God's eternal glory? Suffering is a little while. Glory is eternal. You and I will only be in glory, though, because God has called us into that glory. It is God's gracious choosing of you before you were ever born into salvation. It is God's grace being dispensed upon you when he gave you eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel. And it is as though Peter is reassuring us that if God has shown you all of this grace so far, surely the well of grace has not run dry. Indeed, it hasn't because he's the God of all grace. If God has called you into salvation, he will keep you in salvation until you receive the fullness of that salvation when you either cross over into glory or when Christ returns. So salvation from start to finish is by grace. It is all of grace. Peter here is giving the early church and all the rest of us who read this letter the weapon of the assurance of God's grace, so that we might rest assured that though we must suffer for Christ in this lifetime, after a little while in this mortal body, we will experience the fullness of God's grace. Until then, we hold fast in faith to the assurance we have of this reality found in the scriptures. As the old Puritan Stephen Charnock said, assurance is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. But I can't help but wonder, friends, if you have this assurance this morning, as we sit here today speaking of the sufferings of Christ, have you come to know this suffering servant? Has the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shown in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Have you been forgiven of all of your sin and called into God's eternal glory in Christ? Have you been given a new heart? If these things have happened to you, my friend, hallelujah. But if they have not, 
then cry out to the Lord today. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ came bodily to save sinners. He died a criminal's death. He was resurrected and now reigns as king. And if you call upon him as Lord, you will be saved. If you do know Christ and you've struggled with assurance, I want to remind you that salvation is all of grace. If you're saved, you're not saved because of you. You're not saved because God said that one right there. I want that one. They're so good. Look at the way that they are so moral and they hold doors open for old ladies. No, what he saw was a wretch. And he was moved in compassion to show you grace. Why? Because he chose to. So then, my friend, if God has shown you such grace, he will continue to show you such grace. Because it was not because of you that he gave it to you. It will not be because of you that he continues to give it to you. Salvation is all of grace. So what should that truth do in your heart? Verse 11, it shall lead you in praise and worship. To him be the dominion forever and ever. That is a praise and worship of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty and salvation, sovereignty over Satan, sovereignty over suffering, sovereignty over everything in all of the universe. To him be the dominion forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you, we know that you are in heaven. You are reigning supreme. You are not worried and scared by the little trivial matters that we bother ourselves with in this finite world. Instead, you reign supreme above it all. Lord, thank you that the devil is a ferocious foe, but he's on a leash. Thank you that even the devil accomplishes God's purposes. Even even the most evil and wicked things that we can imagine. Your word says that you cause all things to work out for good. And what the devil meant for evil, you mean for good. You're in control of all things. Help us to be reminded. Help us to don the weapons of vigilance, of resistance, of remembrance and assurance, knowing that our foe is ferocious yet. And until the day we... Our, our mortal body perishes, that we would be using those weapons against him, that we might live lives that glorify you. Go with us and empower us to apply this to our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.